So we're um, on our third sermon today in a series on the Nicene Creed. And um, so the, the biblical text that I'm going to read quickly here is on page 10, but stick uh, your finger maybe in page 16. That's the creed, kind of sermon by sermon. You'll see the outline of the series there on page 16. Well, let's just hear a few verses from the letter to the Hebrews, uh, beginning in chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you're my son, today I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. And please, Lord, guide us through this now, we ask. Change us through this. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So for 12 years in our worship services, we have been using the Nicene Creed together to uh, confess our faith. And now I'm preaching a little sermon series on the Creed, uh, which you can see there, the outline of the series on page 16. Do you guys know why it's called a creed? What is a, you know what a creed is? So some of you scholars might know that the, the Latin word credo just means I believe. And so what's going on with creeds is that when God speaks, what are we supposed to say? We're supposed to say amen. <laughs> We're supposed to say, like this is actually not optional. We are supposed to say, I believe it. God said it, I believe it. In fact, the Bible tells us we need to be ready to go public with that. We need to be ready to go public and say, you know what, y'all, God said it. I believe it. Well, the Nicene Creed is saying, I believe it, to the Bible's basic story arc. So look on page 16 and look, just look at the creed, or it's there, I think, on page 10. The creed is saying, I believe it, to the basic story arc that we find in God's word, the Bible. And you guys know this story arc. Someone once said it's kind of like a play in four parts. God made a fantastically good world, Number two, we fouled it up bad. <laughs> Number three, God has done something about that. Which, by the way, that's kind of like most of the Bible. And number four, the end of the story is going to be even better than the beginning. That's the story arc of the Bible. God made a fantastically good world. We really messed it up. God has done something about that. And the end of the story is going to be even better than the beginning. There's the story arc. And that arc is what the Nicene Creed essentially is tracing, you can see. And so far in the sermon series, in the first two messages, we have only been in that first point of the arc of the story arc. God made a fantastically good world. And the first two sermons have just been in the part of the creed that talks about God and his world. 
And we've learned some things. Like in Article 1 of the Creed, we, re we learned, which is kind of obvious, hopefully, <laughs> that the world is not God. Because there's only one God. There is no other God. There is nothing else that is God. And there is nothing remotely like God. The world is most certainly not God. But we also learned that the world is good because God made it. He is the Father Almighty, and as the Father Almighty, He almightily fathers things, including the creation. And then in Article 2, which we looked at last week, we turned, the creed turns us to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and so on, and then I also believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is, as we turn now to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the creed starts talking about Him, we're still on that first point. We're still talking about God in the world. See, when I hear the words, Lord Jesus Christ, I want to jump right into history and maybe the second point of the story about how bad we messed it up and so on. But actually, if you really want to know who Jesus is, you've got to stay on that first point because he is the one God. He is one of the persons of the one God. Because the creed says that before there was a world, before all ages, before there was history, the Lord Jesus, the one we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, was born of the Father before there was a creation. He was born of the Father before all ages. We talked about the fact that he was not born of the Father as something distinct from God. He is God from God within God's own timeless being. And we spent some time trying to unpack that last week. And we were in John's Gospel, and we were reminded that even as this one we call the Lord Jesus Christ is God's loving self-utterance within himself, God speaking forth his eternal word that is, is God and is with God in his bosom. Even as this one we call Jesus is that loving self-utterance of God in himself, he is also the utterance, the word, John calls him, by whom all things were made. So we're still talking about God in the world. Jesus is God and he's the one through whom God made all things as the Father Almighty. That is some intense background. And it's with that intense background now, and it's very intense, that the creed finally now today, in the part we're going to talk about today in sermon number three, moves us then to history and says something equally mind-boggling, which is that this one who is God from God, before there was a creation, he is God from God. We're told now in this third section that he became man. And notice the language with which this part opens. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. And by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So before we take a moment to ask just how exactly God could become man, I just want to pause over why. Why God became man. And now we really have moved to that second point in the ark. God made a fantastically good world and we really messed it up bad. I want to talk for a moment about our problem with God. Because if we're going to see why God, why God became man, we have to understand something the Bible calls sin. Now sin, this thing the Bible calls sin, it starts with what? You guys. Starts with our first parents, right? The first time human beings disobeyed God, they ate of the tree that God said, don't eat of the tree. And sin continues in all of the ways that we human beings disobey God. Now, I know this is completely foreign to the modern mind. This just goes boink for modern people. But the Bible tells us very plainly that the good life is not when everything conforms to what we want. See, when I think about Ben Miller's good life, I think about everything in 
the cosmos, kind of doing what I want, conforming to me. The Bible says actually it's the other way around, that our good life is when we conform to what God wants. That's the good life, to be conformed slowly over time, formed to what God wants because he loves me more than I love myself, knows for me what's best, better than I know. And when we refuse that, it's called sin. Now, the reason why it's kind of hard to understand sin, and when I talk to modern audiences, even, you know, most of y'all, I assume, are, you know, you, you probably know your Bible pretty, pretty well, and, you know, you've been Christians for a while, and, and, you know, but even for us that are pretty familiar with the Bible, it, it's hard to really kind of let sin, like, feel what the Bible means when it talks about sin. And I think the reason for that is because a lot of times we tend to see God the way stereotypical teens see their parents. Now, I say stereotypical because, you know, we're working on a different model of adolescence here at Trinity, but, you know, there are stereotypical, scene, uh, stereotypical teens, you, you kind of can imagine, and there's a certain way that stereotypical teens look at their parents, and they basically look at their parents, and they're like, you know, these people are from another time, uh, possibly even the time of the dinosaurs, right? They, they do not get life now. They can't. They were not, they were, like, they lived before the iPhone was invented. I mean, how out of date can you be? And they just don't understand how smart we are today. You know, all of us who've been, you know, in the modern world since babyhood, like we're just so much smarter than our parents and they just don't understand how much smarter we are. And they, they don't really want us to have real freedom. It somehow annoys them when we act like we can do our own thing. They kind of don't love it when we have fun. They squash fun. And the crazy thing about parents is really annoying is that they just have a terrible attitude when you challenge them. Like they just can't get over the fact they've been challenged and their plans have been disrupted. They're just really frustrated when things don't go exactly the way they want. And as a teen, you're just like, ugh. They're so yesterday. And I've lived like 16 whole years. I don't understand what their problem, you know, that's kind of how we look at them. And we look at God that way. You know, God is so, it, assuming God is real, I mean, science has called that into question, but I mean, God is just so yesterday. Like, I've lived 48 whole years, and it just is so yesterday. He's probably not even worth attending to. And we all know, I mean, God, you hear about this, you know, the, the preacher with the craggy finger pointing at you. You know, God doesn't like it when we act like we're free. He doesn't like people having fun. He makes all these bad-tempered threats when people, like, do what they want to do. And so when you think about God this way, you know, the whole idea of sin, quote-unquote, it's just a way to control people. Now, if that's how you look at God, sin is not going to make any sense to you. But what if we change the imagery a little bit? Gyla reminded me last week of a, a picture that Cornelius Van Til used to use in picturing our relationship with God. If you imagine a little like barely toddler, like this little, little tight can hardly walk, and a parent picks this child up and is holding the child in their lap. Maybe after having just fed them dinner, maybe changed them, bathed them, loves the child, and the child is just having one of those fits that ch children that age are want to have, and reaches up and, you know, just kind of struggles up and just slaps mom or dad on the face. Tries to yank their hair, tries to poke them in the eye. If this parent so much as let go, you would just splat on the floor. And yet there's this aggression toward the very parent who is holding you. Maybe that's a better way of thinking about God, although I don't think that's even nearly adequate. 
when you sin, when you defy God, when you decide to disobey God, do you realize, brothers and sisters, you and I, when we do that, we are picking a fight with the maker of heaven and earth. Do you realize just how stupid that is? To think that you, who are breathing because God lets you breathe, while he rules the cosmos with unimaginable power, he literally is the architect who thought the whole thing up and spoke it into existence, and you're going to sit on his lap and you're going to challenge him? A God with this kind of authority? You're going to tell that God, oh, I can't, God. I just couldn't possibly. I won't. How dare you? You're going to say that? To this God who made the heavens and the earth. That is insane. And if you do not feel that that is insane, it's because you don't really know who God is or you don't really know who you are before him. But if understanding God's unimaginable power and wisdom and majesty can begin to help us feel the insanity of sin, it's really when you understand God's love that you understand the gravity of sin. You know, if you know God's power and wisdom, you should, th you should think it is insane to defy him. But it's really when you know how boundless God's love for us is that you really see how serious sin is, the gravity of it. And I think that's where the parental imagery actually can be helpful. You slap your mom and dad... You know, brothers and sisters, there actually are very few people in the world who would unhesitatingly take a bullet for you. Your mom and dad are probably one of them. And to treat that kind of love and just slap it in the face, God gave you your existence just because of love. You are because God, God thought you up. Every day you breathe his air, his sun rises, his rain falls on you. And, you know, for those of us who know anything about Jesus, the love of God, it is unstoppable. It is unquenchable. It is after us even when we, even when we sin. God loves us more than we love ourselves. He knows what is good for us more than we have any idea. And he wants to accomplish that good in our lives and he's determined to do it because he can and he will and when you just thumb your nose at that, that is a, such a serious personal offense. God is not like some electric impersonal force. He is personal and it's a personal offense and that's why the Bible, when it talks about sin, doesn't just talk about us being insane. It talks about us being enemies and it is from that estrangement that state of alienation, that state of enmity, which we caused. God didn't cause it, we caused it. That's what we need to be saved from. One of our catechisms says we are rightly under God's wrath and curse, not because God is bad-tempered, because God is righteous. We deserve his wrath and curse because we are so rebellious. We refuse to worship him and give him thanks. And so that's our state. That's why we need to be saved. That's our problem with God. And what we need in that state is to have a mediator, uh, someone to stand between us and God. And the, uh, the term that the Bible uses for this, and other religions do too, is a, we need a priest. And so you can see in the text, if you look at Hebrews 5, verse 1, priests are appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So that's the first thing 
that priests do. A priest is someone who goes to God for us to make things right. And we'll talk in a moment about that. But it's also interesting that Hebrews goes on and says he not only can do things on behalf of men in relation to God, look at verse 2, he also can then turn and deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. So a priest, this mediator we call a priest, he not only goes to God to make things right, a priest can also minister to us. And that's important because even if God's favor is restored, you turn back and look at us, you know, we're still a mess. <laughs> we're still, <coughs> even if God is favorable toward us, we are still beset by temptations. We're tempted to, 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 to disobey and to leave undone good things that God tells us to do. And because we've sinned, we're, we have misery in our life, or sometimes because other people have sinned, we have misery in our life. There are so many ways the world is broken because of humans just refusing to do what God says. There's weakness that we experience, and we, it's hard sometimes to obey. It's hard to even want to obey, hard to want to pursue what God says. And so a priest can not only do things in relationship to God for us, but he can then come back to us and he can minister to us. So the question is, who's going to be that priest? And, and the writer goes on here to say, the problem with human priests is that they are no better than we are, right? You'll notice in verse 3, human priests are also sinners, and they have to offer sacrifices for their own sins, verse 3. A priest is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people, right? Because they have the exact same problem we do with God, and so there's, there's this fundamental weakness in human priests that they need a priest too, and in the end, because human priests are sinners, they all die, which means they have kind of a short shelf life, and then you need another priest. So that's, that's a problem, and so that brings us then to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's our problem with God, this estrangement that requires a priest, and now I'd like to talk for a moment, having looked at our problem with God, talk briefly about God's provision for us. Now notice the language of the creed that the Lord Jesus Christ for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. This is really important. The reason why the creed began, not by talking about Jesus in history, began by telling us that Jesus is God. Like that's the first thing the creed wanted us to know. Jesus is God from God. And the reason why it told us first that Jesus is God is that now we're able to see that it is God who has come down from, as it were, his realm of being. He has come to provide for us what we could not provide for ourselves. So we're down here in this state of enmity, and we're a mess, we're tempted, we're sinning, we're, we have misery, we have weakness. And God, the offended party, by the way, he comes from his order or realm of being, if you like, and he is now going to provide for us what we cannot provide at all for ourselves. And you'll notice here that his provision for us is not for something he does, it's someone he becomes. The first, when you think about God you know, saving us, he, he has come for us and our salvation, don't first think about, I don't know what your mind runs to, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. First thing to think about is that Jesus is God becoming someone. He becomes, he takes in his person something else beyond what he has in his godness. 
the Bible tells us he takes to himself, and, and this text in Hebrews is, is, is one place that says this, God, he, God takes to himself, he adds to himself. This is not subtraction, it's addition. <laughs> he adds to himself a human body, just like ours. Look at your body. It's very interesting, these things we call bodies. Jesus had one, and he has a human soul, a human mind, a human emotions. He becomes the man that we call Jesus of Nazareth, or as John puts it in his gospel, the word, this eternal self-utterance of God, took flesh. Now, I want you to just think, before we get to anything Jesus does, I want you to just think about this person, the Son of God, the Word of God, God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made, of one substance or consubstantial with the Father. He, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven and became man. It's crucial that in adding our humanness to himself, Jesus did not lose any of his godness. There is a heresy, a false teaching that you will hear among Christians that somehow Jesus kind of gave up a bunch of his godness to become a man. That is absolutely false. He did not give up any of his godness. He did veil it. It's not so visible, obviously, or he would have just blasted people out of his path as he walked in the earth. He is still fully God, and yet as fully God, he is fully human. He has, as I said, a body. If you pricked him, he would bleed. He sweated. Maybe he lost some hair by the time he was in his 30s. I don't know. He, he experienced stubbed toes and, you know, things under his fingernails. He had a mind. He had thoughts. He learned. He learned how to read. He learned how to talk. He had emotions. He felt sadness. He felt depression. He felt anxiety. He felt joy. He felt the range of emotions that you feel. Of course, the one exception is that he never sinned. And you have that there in chapter 4, verse 15. If you back up just a few verses... He can sympathize with your weaknesses and my weaknesses because he has in every respect been tempted like we are without sin. That's the big difference. He never sins, but he is subject in his humanity to everything our humanity is subject to. He knew what it was like to be stressed. And so in one person, <clears throat> he's not two different people. He has a fully divine nature, he's fully God, and a fully human nature. They are both... Both of these natures are distinct. It's not that his godness and his humanness are somehow kind of blended in this weird amalgam. They're entirely distinct natures, but they're fully unified in this single person. And this brings me to what I know you all have been waiting for. Please, Pastor Miller, hurry up. Let's get to the superheroes. If you look at your, you know, your handout, I've actually found this pretty helpful, and you kids might find this enjoyable. This is a useful depiction of what we're trying to say. So at the very top, you will see, <clears throat> Jesus is not Batman, because Batman is just Bruce Wayne with a very cool suit. He's just a man. He's got a suit that helps him kind of do super powery things, but he is fundamentally just a human. There's no sense whatsoever you could say Bruce Wayne is an alien or from another you know, order of being. He's certainly not a god, and so Jesus is not Batman. He is fully God. But at the bottom, you'll notice, Jesus is also not Superman, because the thing about Clark Kent is that Clark Kent is actually Kal-El. That's who he really is. He's from another planet. He is an alien. He looks like a man, but he's actually something from another order of being. That's not true of Jesus. He's not, he's not, a, he's not God who just kind of looks like a man. Like, well, he looks like he has a body, but it's not really a body. It's not a full human body. It's just kind of like a you know, human veneer. It's not like Jesus' mind and emotions are just kind of like, well, he kind of 
pretends like he has human thoughts and emotions, but you know, really he's just fundamentally this divine nature. No, he is fully God and he is fully man. But then there are these two other confusions on the left and right we need to be very, very careful of because, for example, on the right, Jesus is not Spider-Man because Spider-Man's this weird dude who gets bit by a spider and there's this, if I understand the lore correctly, there's this strange sort of thing that happens with this DNA where he's kind of like partly spider and now partly man and the two natures are kind of like blended together and now you've got this Spider-Man. That is not Jesus. He is not the God-Man in the sense that somehow there's been a weird like DNA thing where Godness kind of gets mixed up with manness and somehow, you know, he's sort of infinite, eternal, unchangeable, but he's also kind of like subject to time and space and change. It's not how it is. There's not a blend of these two. They are two distinct natures. But then be careful on the left-hand side because you've got to be careful not to go too far the other direction because he's also not the Hulk. See, the problem with the Hulk is that Bruce Banner and the Hulk are like two entirely separate beings, almost unrecognizable to each other. When this weird thing happens where Bruce Banner gets upset, he morphs into a very different person. And so Jesus is not like the Hulk. He is not like one person over here and then another person over here, depending on like which nature is doing its thing. No, he is in one single person with one center of consciousness as one agent. He is both of these natures, fully the natures, but also distinct, yet united in one person. So, you know, you all can point out my various heretical slippages later, but that's, I think, a decent way of trying to understand a bit about who Jesus is as fully God and fully man. So let me now finally get to where I'm going. How does that relate to our salvation? Why does all this matter? Why superheroes and so on? Well, we're talking today about Jesus' humanity. Last week we talked about the fact that he's God, but this week that he's human, and that's really crucial because it is Jesus' humanness that is the reason why he can be our priest and our sacrifice. Jesus, because he is full human, can stand in our place. He can stand before God as us because he is one of us. He can bear God's wrath and curse on our sin. He can take, he didn't have any sin, but he can take our sin, take that to God, and he can take God's wrath and curse in our place only because he is one of us. He can go to God and offer to God that perfect obedience that God demands of his human creatures. He can offer that for us because he's one of us. He can atone for, that big word that means he can can do what is necessary to pay the debt and cancel the debt and take away God's curse so our sin is covered and forgiven. He He can do that work for us because he is one of us. He can restore God's favor upon humans because he is human. And he's not just partially human. He is full human, which means he saves all of our humanity. He doesn't just save your soul. See, there are Christians who I really think, I get so tired of hearing Christians say, you know, I'm, I, I kind of worry about going to heaven because I don't like sort of like drifting around in the ether and playing a harp and wearing a crown and wearing white all the time. Like, you, you, what are you talking about? Jesus saved your body and your soul and, by the way, the creation as a whole. And it's groaning like crazy until he comes and the whole thing is redeemed. This world, cleansed of sin, glorified in ways we can't imagine. Your body, it's all been saved by Jesus. The whole of our humanity. Not just our little souls, but all of us. And in fact, I'll say one more kind of crazy thing because he has saved our 
corporate humanity, not just individual humans. Because we are told he was born of the Virgin Mary, he was born into a line of seed. He is the seed of the woman. And so in coming into history, it's as if he's reaching back to the beginning and reaching to the end and taking all of us as a people with him. He really is the savior of humanity. Born into our human race with all of its complex interrelations. Because he's, he's here to save a people, not just cherry-pick individuals out of history. And so all of that Jesus can do as the priest who goes to God on our behalf. But then I also said there's a second thing priests do. They can come back and minister to the people. And as one of us, as a full human, Jesus can not just do that priestly work of going and making things right with God. Jesus can then come and care for us because he's one of us. And this just touches my heart. Man, did I need to hear this this week. <laughs> Jesus is one of us. And as he ministers to us, he knows our frame. Not just as the creator. I mean, God knows everything about you. He, he, he wove you together in the, your mother's womb. I mean, he knows your frame as the creator, but Jesus knows our frame, not just as the creator of God, but as our brother. He has lived in it, this nature, with all of its weaknesses. He feels with our temptations because he was hounded by the devil in ways we can only try to imagine. There was never a single moment in our Lord where his heart, excuse me, wanted to sin, excuse me, but he was externally tempted by the evil one in ways we can only try to imagine the pressure that bore down on our Lord when he never buckled. He feels with our temptations. He feels with our infirmities, the text tells us, because he has experienced the weakness of life in this body that is subject to death. Jesus was born dying just like you and me. He got sick, he got tired, he got worn down, he woke up in certain days with stuff probably going on in his mental health, to use the popular term now. We are told in chapter, two, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 2, he can deal gently, he can deal gently with us when we are stupid, when we're ignorant. Even the priest can deal gently with the wayward, the stubborn, that sheep that just insists on going its own way. He is gentle. There's not a sword of Damocles hanging over us when we wander out of the good way where it's like, man, three strikes, you're done. That's not his heart toward us. Because while he obeyed his father perfectly, if you look down at chapter 5, verse 8, we're reminded he learned that perfect obedience in the fires of such suffering. And so it's like Jesus is running alongside us, and he, is, he never stumbles and falls, but he experiences the strain of the race. And when you and I stumble and fall, and when Ben Miller's case is like every four or five steps, wham, Ben's on his face again, falling, sinning, leaving undone that which I ought to have done, doing that which I ought not to have done, what is the response of our elder brother? It's not to step on us. He reaches down and picks us up. He is gentle because he knows the strain of the race. And so to close, I'd like to offer you a word of peace, first of all, a word of peace. Because the main conclusion that the writer of Hebrews draws from Jesus' humanity in verse 16 of chapter 4 
His main conclusion from the fact that our Lord is man is that you and I should come to our God with confidence. Can I just speak that to you as a word of peace? Come with confidence to God because God wants to give you mercy. That we may receive first mercy, forgiveness, pardon. God wants to give you mercy. He sent Jesus so he could give you mercy. And we have this idea sometimes that Jesus kind of like barely scraped out a pardon from this angry deity who just kind of like begrudgingly, okay, fine, my son died, I'll, I'll let it go. No, that's not how it is. Jesus is God from God. He was sent by God as God from himself precisely for our salvation. That's why he came. God wants sinners to receive mercy. He wants to give you mercy when you need mercy. You've sinned so bad. <laughs> You've blown it so bad. You are such a mess. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And it's not just, it's not just mercy. Your priest standing there with the Father, he wants to give you grace to help you in your time of need. He understands your weakness. He understands your frailty. He is gentle. He cares. Come with confidence. That's the word of peace. Just come. But I'd also like to close with a word of purpose, a word of purpose for you as children of God. And as brethren of Jesus, he's not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. A word of purpose. You are children of God. You are brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that God's mission and Jesus' mission, it's your mission too. Jesus came for us men in our, for our salvation, the creed tells us. And you are to go for men and for their salvation. What God is doing in the world through his son, he wants you to be doing in the world through his son, to be going out for others and for their salvation. You are to be agents of change in the world. But here's the thing. We're going out with our God under the banner of our Lord Jesus to seek to change things. On that mission, there is a certain vibe, if I can put it that way. Because when I go out, seeking for people to change and come back to God and start living right. I have this, this hammer that I, I have with me, and it's a hammer of truth. It's a hammer of justice, and I like this hammer because it makes sense. This is a lie. This is the truth. This is wrong. This is right, and I like that hammer, and it's clear, and I, it's very easy for me to wield, and sometimes that hammer has its place, but it takes such great strength and such great wisdom to be a person walking after Jesus who can deal gently. The, the, another way of interpreting this word in, in the Greek would be to deal mildly with people who are ignorant. Like, does, does ignorance enrage you? Or wayward? Does stubbornness make you twitch? It takes strength and wisdom to deal with gentleness when people don't know what they're talking about, they're extremely deluded, they're very stubborn, but there is this heart of Christ that is gentle. Gentle. Not lax, not laissez-faire, not everything goes, but gentle. 
And you know, Friedrich Nietzsche used to mock this thing in Christianity. We're all about mercy and grace and kindness, and he just mocked it. You know why Nietzsche mocked it? Because Nietzsche had a shriveled soul. He didn't have the heart of Christ. Jesus, God in flesh, came to save. He came to identify with us, to sympathize with us, to restore us. That's the mission. And so the mood of life in a community of Jesus people who believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, it is certainly not laxity. Oh, you know, fine, anything goes. No, everything does certainly not go because God is holy. But there is, as we work out our sin and seek to live righteously before God, there is sympathy, there's gentleness, there's patience, there's help. Because God in His Son has fit His way of saving people to the people that he is saving. He knows what kinds of creatures we are, and he's fit his way of saving to the kind of creature that he is saving. God does not come and coerce bodily behavior. See, that's what people that love violence are trying to do. Let's just take a sword and force the issue. That's not how God changes things. He doesn't come and coerce bodily you know, behaviors with a sword or a club. He, he, he fits his way of saving to the creature he is saving, and he captures our deepest love the deepest trust of our hearts with a cross. And that changes the mood in a community of Jesus people. And we'll see more next week about just how exactly that worked out as we come to the work of Christ. But enough for now. Father, we thank you for your son, that he is God and man. May we ever more approach you with confidence through him. In Jesus we pray, amen.